welcome to Have You Seen? And yes, all you cannibals out there, that was an ellipsis. I'm your host, Lee Henry, and welcome back to the podcast where I and a guest talk in depth about movies, if so long as we can answer the question, have you seen, with a yes. Halloween inches ever closer, and even though we can't dress like sluts or party like goblins, we can still observe the season the best way I know how, which is watching scary movies. Now, my guest this week is a big fan of both Halloween and of horror. Lindsay Couch, how are you today? Lee, I'm good. I'm so glad to be here. I'm doing great today. Good to hear. Uh, Lindsay, what movie are we going to be talking about today? Today, we're talking about mine and yours absolute favorite, Silence of the Lands. Oh, yes, I can't wait. What a movie. Every time I watch it, I am I am reborn anew in its brilliance. I like paused to take notes. Like I called uh, people in the room and was like, watch this scene. It's so good. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Aren't people getting murdered? I'm like, okay, yes, but you know. I know. But, I totally... uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, good. No, no, no. After you, I insist. I was going to say, every time you watch it, you like notice something else or there's like another layer that gets like more complex every single time. I totally agree. Yeah. And I like in that, in that vein, um, I will go ahead and, you know, jump ahead a bit to the actual discourse of it, but just say, if I was teaching a class on film and it was like how to, you know, just the very basic, like how to read a film, how to write about a film, how to understand film making, this would be the final exam. Like the way that this movie is directed, the way that it's acted, the score, the the cinematography, the production design, it's all so good. Like every element of this movie is absolutely perfect. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I would absolutely take that class with you, by the way be fun it'd be uh it'd be a lot of like personal favorites that i can't justify putting in there like some diane keaton rom-coms of course um but uh it would i think i think people would enjoy it uh in the uh in the vein of silence of the lambs and of things that go bump in the theater i thought it might be prudent to talk about some favorite movie villains or you know adversaries monsters whatever we whatever we want to call it so uh do you have a favorite go-to movie villain so you're really going to like my number one. Um, I have to say it's Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction. She's got to be up there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I also, I'm, I think all my favorite villains have to do with a psychological thriller. That's which I'll talk about later, but that's, that's my niche. So I'm going to say Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct. Great choice. Well. Um, what else do I have on my list? Oh, I have Norman Bates again, mm. obviously. Um, and I don't want to get too far ahead because I know this is your next week topic, but I also have to say Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Have to. Yeah. Uh, everyone you named is scary as hell. Uh, and I, I love the last two that you named because they're really interesting. Like, they're equal parts villain and victim. Um, especially yeah. Jack Nicholson in The Shining, right? Like, to me, the adversary of that film is... And we'll, I'm going to talk about this in, in my episode on it next week, but it's like the hotel rather than him. But of course, he has these personality flaws that make him such a an empathetic and interesting character, but also that make him susceptible to the manipulations of what's going on in this creepy ass hotel. And yeah, uh, there's a Jack Nicholson on my list too. Uh, Jack Nicholson's version of the Joker in the Batman, the 1989 Batman. I love, that's exactly what a superhero villain should be to me. Really so big and ridiculous that they shouldn't work on screen almost. Like they should only work on the page and yet they can bring it to life through a great performance because he's scary, he's funny, he's creepy, he's weird. Um, uh, On the horror end of things, Michael Myers is my ultimate um, scary movie bad guy because besides Hannibal Lecter, uh, but Michael Myers is so creepy the way he never talks and the way he never moves beyond like a very slow walk and yet somehow he's always gaining on you um oh i love the original halloween and uh, michael myers is a huge part of that uh the alien and alien and the jaw the shark from jaws are both big ones for me because i saw both of those movies at impressionable ages and really like imprinted on them as some of my faves um but that i know it looks cheesy now but that shark still scares the heck out of me mm-hmm. Um, and then of course the alien from alien is just like, it's just unstoppable. Like it just mows through that ship worth of people as it's getting bigger and weirder. Every scene that you see it, it's, it's a different form and it has a different ability that you can't compete with, but that just makes, uh, 
Sigourney Weaver all the more badass when she uh, takes it out. You went like way, I love that, of course, that's so Lee to name, you know, not human villains as your mm. favorite villains. That's very Lee. I did think about Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction, but I like have to put a moratorium on myself for talking about Glenn Close, you know? I know. Well, I wouldn't have ever seen damages if it wasn't for you. So I just owe you big time in Glenn Close points. Yeah, big shout out. If you want to watch a great show in the vein of all the other great shows that have been big over the past few years, like your uh, Breaking Bads, your Succession, stuff like that, check out Damages. It's an underrated gem. And Glenn Close, it's just like the performance of a lifetime from the actress of a lifetime. Agree. Uh, oh, I, of course, had Scar from The Lion King. Um, <gasps> I thought about that. Yeah, who is who is more iconic than, than Be Prepared himself? Love. Yeah, there's, um, I don't know, what do you think makes a good villain? Especially, I, I love that a lot of yours were in that same, uh, as you said, niche of like, psychological um, tormentor kind of. So what, what do you think makes the people that stand out to you stand out? I guess you're right. I guess all of mine are kind of shaded with this like, deeply rooted psychological issue. And I almost think that like, as viewers, and actually, now that you talk about the Joker, the most recent adaptation of the Joker is kind of along that same note of you when you gain a little insight into how troubled a villain is, and then you see why they act the way they are, I almost feel like you connect with them better or something. Um, I think that's why my favorite villains are from psychological thrillers. I've just always been obsessed with the psyche and like how it can impact people. And I think nowadays more than ever, we're seeing like the repercussions of that with people in real life so mm -hmm. i just feel like a good villain is is twisted and you know a little bit about that and you get that basis and it it just plays out on screen yeah i think i think those are the ones that you end up really feeling in your bones are the ones that you don't necessarily feel sorry for but you gain an understanding for why they do what they do and what makes them tick exactly but that's something that's so fascinating about um the uh incredibly iconic uh, star of Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins's adaptation of uh, Hannibal Lecter, is that we really don't get a lot about his past, but we do get to see what makes him tick. He loves messing with people. He loves um, poking and pushing as far as he can. And there's nothing he loves more than like a really entertaining kind of tete-a-tete with people. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, like like you said, being one of the most static characters in that he is a renowned serial killer who also has these idiosyncrasies that he cares about being polite or mm -hmm. he cares about being civil, you know? So it's just, he's so complex. Yeah, and he loves, you know, the Duomo of Florence. He loves the music of Bach. He uh, He's a gourmand. He asks for that rack of lamb, which I, or whatever it was, the bloody rare lamb chops. Uh -huh, I love that they would give that to a prisoner. I don't buy that one bit. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I know. Well, on the subject, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of what Silence of the Lambs is about? Give us an overview of the plot. Yes. So a little bit about Silence of the Lambs. So um, Jodie Foster plays a up-and-coming FBI agent who has not yet graduated from the FBI Academy. And um, her name is Clary Starling. And Agent Star soon to be Agent Starling is um, very ambitious and um, she is ready to prove herself. Um, as she's going through her training at the FBI Academy, she gets called into uh, Jack Crawford's office, who is the, correct me if I'm wrong, the FBI psycho behavioral director? Exactly, yeah. Okay, yes. And he, basically gives her sort of the, um, the chance of a lifetime to go and sit with and question the one of the most uh, prolific serial killers behind bars, who is Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins. And as Clary Starling arrives, she is not even fully aware of exactly why she's there. She's there sort of as a ploy, but she's not aware of that. Um, am I giving just a trailer or am I giving an overview? What do you uh, you can you can do a bit more because you know we gotta we gotta talk about Buffalo Bill. Okay, okay, okay. So right as she's leaving, um, 
right as she's leaving Jack Crawford's office and she knows that her mission is to go and talk with Hannibal Lecter, she does look at the poster behind Jack Crawford's desk and she sees there's all these different postings about the most recent ser serial killer, Buffalo Bill. And she has an idea right as she's leaving and she asks Jack Crawford, am I going to interview Hannibal Lecter about Buffalo Bill? But of course he says no. And he does this knowingly because he doesn't, he knows just how insightful and how intelligent Hannibal Lecter is. And he doesn't want to basically present her on a platter with all of her intentions, you know, mm -hmm. bearing to Hannibal Lecter. Um, but it doesn't take long for Clary Starling to figure out that that is exactly why she is there. Um, yeah, that's a great segue. Yeah, um, a little bit of detail just about the the context of the movie. So obviously, this is a very well regarded movie. Um, it is the third and most recent and or possibly last movie to win what's called the Big Five at the Oscars. It won Best Picture, Director, Lead Actor, Lead Actress, and Screenplay. Only two other movies have done it. And this is the most recent. Um, it's also the only horror movie to win Best Picture, although some people would call it a thriller. I don't know. When you have a guy making a suit out of people's skins, I think it qualifies as a horror movie. Fight me. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it also was ranked, um, Hannibal Lecter was ranked the greatest villain in movie history by the American Film Institute in their poll in the late 90s. Uh, I do think that's a bit of recency bias, but I do think that even if they did it today, he would he had to be in the top 10, if not the top five. Uh, and then Clarice was ranked the number six hero, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, oh, go ahead. I've, I've seen this before that you, you're talking about uh, Anthony Hopkins being award-winning for this. And they talk about his screen time being like, how many minutes? Like 20 minutes, less than 20 minutes of actual screen time, but he was still awarded. Is this correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right. He's uh, he's on screen for, I believe it's 19 minutes, but he won the lead actor Oscar that year. And I think it's because not only was he an incredible actor doing the role of a lifetime, but he looms so large over this movie. Like, even though we're not seeing him all that often, he's in her mind and he's in our minds because he's just so effective at getting into the viewer's head. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is crazy. That's epic. And on that note, I mean, I think one of the, as good a place to start as any in this movie is with just how good the acting is. I, I know this sounds hyperbolic, um, but I think that Jodie Foster's performance in this movie is one of the greatest that's ever been put on film. Like there, I said it. I think she is so brilliant in this movie and not just the exchanges with Lecter, which are kind of the, the money scenes, um, like you've got these incredibly brilliant people, a young up and comer and a guy sort of who has nothing but his mind and these games he can play. And they just, she can match him and he loves that. So even though he initially dismisses her and I love the, their first meeting, he, um, he says, Jack Crawford said a trainee to test me and he's really angry. But uh, then she immediately comes back with this really brilliant witty thing to kind of point out that he's being rude and that he doesn't know anything about her and it just impresses the hell out of him and it's almost like from then on he's like okay I'm a fan of you I'm gonna help you out and it goes back to kind of one of the questions I have about and I want to get your take on this Hannibal Lecter being ranked uh, the greatest villain in movie history is odd to me not just because that would be such a hard spot to get but then also because he's not really the villain of this movie. He's not an antagonist. He is an awful, scary, terrifying murderer, let's be real, but the antagonist as relates to the protagonist of Clarice is Buffalo Bill. And in every other way, uh, besides you know just being scary, Hannibal is kind of the mentor figure. Absolutely. And I, I, wonder, I wanna know if you see him as a villain. Wow, I never thought about it like that. But you're right. And as an English teacher who teaches archetypes every single year, you are right. He absolutely does play more of a mentor figure. He is coaching in a lot of ways, guiding um, Jodie Foster to the conclusion of the, the film. So I've never considered it that he's not actually a villain. I think people just can't get past like his villainous history. And then of course, he does have some scenes in the movie, like the police officers and his great escape. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Migs. Like he does have some acts of violence so it's possible that people associate those violent acts with him falling into the villain category 
or maybe just that they cannot move past like his very twisted history that we we kind of learn in anecdotal evidence as the movie goes on, like from people like Dr. Chilton and Jack Crawford. Yeah, I think I think the um, the line about so they've they've gone through this this first meeting and you know she kind of Clarice is starting to feel like maybe she's got the best of this and then he has this great moment that is the most iconic line in the whole thing where he reminds her just what he is and he says you know a census taker once tried to test me uh, I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti and it's such a great moment because not only is it creepy as hell but it reminds her that this isn't a norm this isn't just a charming fun engaging human being that she's dealing with this is a monster this is the guy who killed and ate people because he liked it um and so the fact that he's in my opinion not the real villain of this movie says a lot about how scary buffalo bill is too um i'll give a, a brief overview and there's something i want to talk about in regards to buffalo bill but so buffalo bill is this person who has been abducting uh young women and removing pieces of their skin uh and then dumping the bodies and um, he's a really controversial killer, a lot of, because there, there is an implication that he is trying to become a woman by wearing the skins of women. But, and, and because of that, uh, this history has an interesting, or this movie has an interesting history with the uh, trans community and with allegations of transphobia. So I, I, don't think that it is transphobic, but I say that as a cisgender person. Uh, Lindsay's also a cisgender person. So like, right. we can't say, don't be offended by this or whatever. I would say if that's something that has put you off, I think that even for 2020 standards, this is a really responsible movie because it could have been very transphobic, but not only do, do they go out of their way to say, look, he is not, uh, Bill is not transgender. He has, you know, a narcissistic personality disorder and a need for attention and uh, thinks that one of the ways to get attention is by reforming his form. But I, I don't know, I just kind of wanted to address that as, as clumsily as it may be. Right. Um, one of the other <laughs> things that uh, is really interesting when we, when we jump off from that is uh, the way that gender functions in this movie is very strange but very, I, I think it's one of the reasons that makes it so effective. Clarice is a character is a really interesting blend of masculine and feminine, right? She yes. always wears suits, but she does wear heels and jewelry. And I noticed this time, which you mentioned, we're always finding new things in this movie, that she's even wearing earrings when she's running the course, when she's doing the obstacle course at the very beginning of the movie. Um, so she's not a stranger to playing with femininity and masculinity. And I love that there are always parts of that that don't fit her. Like there's a moment when she's walking through uh, Hannibal's asylum. Uh, so what I was saying before I got caught off by my rude headset dying was uh, that she dresses up for these interactions with Hannibal, but it doesn't quite fit. You know, he comments on her cheap shoes and her, you know, plastic bag or whatever. Uh, and then uh, she can't really walk in heels. And Jodie Foster's too good of an actor to not learn to walk in heels if that was important. So I feel like that's a very deliberate choice. So I love that we have uh, Clarice playing with the masculine and the feminine. And then, of course, on the other end of things, we have Buffalo Bill very much playing with the masculine and the feminine, too, because he has this alter ego where he wears makeup, he tucks, he dances, uh, and he has like a he has a very androgynous side. Um, and then he also, when he is presenting to the world, is very traditionally masculine. He wears flannel button-ups and he um, and baseball caps and stuff. And it's just interesting, I think, the way that we have a, an up-and-coming FBI agent in a world that is very hostile to her because of her gender. And that's a whole other conversation that I really want to get your take on. And then we have another person who is hostile to the world because of his perception of his gender. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you said that because this, I watched it this week and this was the first time that I really picked up on this. And I mean, seeing that it was from 1991, I do think this was a take on the times. Mm -hmm. um, Jodie Foster, there's multiple scenes in which she definitely has to assert um, her, well, she she sort of has a social commentary. So the, the scene that I'm thinking of most specifically is when 
her and um, Jack Crawford are going to the autopsy of one of the Buffalo Bills uh, most recent victims. And Jack Crawford, when he gets there to try to, you know, he, I think he calls it later on guys talk or something to those effect. And he tells these local uh, police officers and sheriffs that he can't talk about certain things, you know, basically in the company of Jodie Foster. And of course she notices this. And when it has an immediate effect, when they go into the room of this woman's body, this recently deceased woman, and she asks to clear the room. Um, so she, she kind of has an immediate reaction, but later on in the car, uh, Jack Crawford is trying to be, you know, sort of civil and, and have a banter with her. And she calls him on it again. And she says, you know, what you said back there. And his response is, well, I kind of have to do that. Basically, it's guys talk to try to, to try to get in with them because they already, you know, of course, they're resistant to FBI being in these small town, these smaller cases. And Jodie Foster, I love it. She says, uh, but it matters. She said, mm-hmm. and he looks at it and she says, it matters. Um, and so, you know, I, I noticed, I really picked up on that this week. And also just even her walking through the FBI office. I mean, there are, there are other female agents, of course. Um, but I really, I really paid attention to the proportions of men versus women this time. And, and so there's like some subtle, there's some direct and then indirect um, pieces of this movie that definitely, that definitely affect her. Yeah. And I, I love everything that you just said. I love that quote. I wrote it down too, because it stuck out to me so much this, this time around. And I love that there's these overt moments of feminism from her where she, you know, she says like, cops look at you to see how to act Jack and, and your actions as a man have consequences. And that's echoed so beautifully in the resolution between those two characters at the end of the film. And I won't spoil it, but it's a really beautiful moment of, you know, him recognizing that the way, the right way to respect people, basically. But um, there's also these kind of covert, uh, under the radar ways that she shows how great of a, we talked about this on the Dragon Tattoo episode, but what a strong female character should be. I think Clarice Starling is 10 out of 10 on every part of the rubric of what a strong, quote unquote, strong female character should be. Because, you know, she is flawed, she's proud and she gets angry. Um, she's really smart, but she can talk down to people. But you know, there's this great moment when Hannibal Lecter's giving her a tip about this storage unit and the guy she's with can't open the storage unit and just gives up. And she just immediately goes to her car, gets the jack out of her car and uses the jack to force the thing open. And I love that because it shows she can use a jack. She can change her own tire. She's competent as hell, which is not surprising. Uh, I mean, that's the character that's been set up the whole movie. She's also really ingenious and she does all of it without having to do a, I don't need a man thing. She just she just smiles at him and then does it. And I I just love the way that this character is depicted, especially for 1991 and the you know after effects of the Reagan administration. And we have we have a woman in government essentially because she works for the FBI. And um, the way that she is treated adversarially by the men around her, but she never rises to that. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's an interesting thing uh, with that too, with regards to emotion, right? Because there's the classic women are emotional and intuitive and men are logical and strong, tough, whatever. And she is an emotional character, but her emotion isn't, you know, it's never a weakness. It's never a hindrance. It's really what drives her. And I think that that is so beautifully shown in the emotion she has in the autopsy room where they're, you know, they're analyzing this woman and Crawford, again, really is, is giving a vote of confidence in her and letting her, encouraging her to do this autopsy or to, to do the notes on the autopsy. She's not performing it. Uh, this isn't an X-File situation where she's somehow doing all of it at once. Um, but uh, she, she is so uh, emotional without over-the-top emoting. Um, she kind of humanizes that victim yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways and it starts with her clearing the room but even if she's even as she's going and she's making you know taking verbal notes um for the coroner about her nail polish and the way her nail the the victim's nails are cut i mean she is definitely showing um it's it's almost 
yeah, it is. It's like a, it's an in touch with her feminine side and, but mm -hmm. she is humanizing the victim. And so there are, there, like you said, there is emotion, but it's not over, overly emotional. Absolutely. Yeah. She's not weeping, but she's very affected by what she's seeing. And I love what you just said about the nail polish. Cause I'd totally forgotten about that, but there's that. And there's the great thing where she says, she's not from around here. Her ears are pierced three times. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's things like that, that, you know, a man in 1991 maybe wouldn't pay attention to and think, oh, an ear piercing is an ear piercing, especially in West Virginia or whatever. But she's like, no, that that matters here. This is where I'm from. These are the people that I know. And I know that this girl would have stuck out enough to either be recognized by everyone or, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, uh, that scene is so powerful. And it's really, a, for a movie about killing women, this movie does a fantastic job of not objectifying women. Absolutely. There's also a scene <clears throat> when she goes to the very last victim's house and she talks to the father downstairs and he allows her to go up into the bedroom and she's looking around, but she definitely has um, a very like detailed and kind of delicate touch while she's going through this bedroom. Yeah. And she, ends up, of course, looking in the back of the jewelry box, um, sort of hidden behind, which like you said, would a man in 1991 think to do that? You know, that there's definitely a personal connection there that led her to that to finding those photographs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, the way she interacts with people is so compassionate and respectful, but also so intellectually driven because it's not, it's not like she has every experience. She just is so good at empathizing and analyzing. She has both of those parts and uses them so effectively. Whereas someone like Hannibal really can just analyze but could never empathize with someone enough like i if he didn't conveniently already know who buffalo bill is which i've always thought was kind of ridiculous um i mean i love it because anthony hopkins selling the hell out of it but like it's it's a bit much that he miraculously knows who this person is from the get-go but um but the reason clarice can find it is because she's able to use again to blend these masculine and feminine characteristics in a really unique way that creates a perspective only she has. Well, and I have to ask you this too. I know that I'm sure you're aware of this too. And, and this is really where your like cinematography and your, your knowledge of that will come into play. But Michelle Pfeiffer was the first pick for this role of Clary Starling. And I just like don't know, would it have been the same if it was played by Michelle Pfeiffer? You know, like obviously screenwriting and writing is writing and, and directing mm -hmm. is directing, but I, Michelle Pfeiffer and Jodie Foster are such different people and even from appearances to just everything on film like I just wonder how different it would be if it was not played by Jodie Foster. Yeah that's a great question I'd totally forgotten that factoid and I as you as you do as well love Michelle Pfeiffer but I think it would have been a completely different performance and probably a lesser one because uh Jodie Foster has a lot of, of crossover with Clarice, which is why she wanted to play her so bad. I know that she was beating down the door to do it from the second it got picked up as a movie. Um, like she uh, had, I believe she was only raised by one parent. She started at a business very young, just like Clarice is orphaned at a very young age and is very independent. Um, she's an incredibly private person, Jodie Foster is, and uh, Clarice is also a very private person. I wonder if without that crossover, if uh, if it would have fired as much with Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm. Um, but you mentioned cinematography. And one of the things I want to talk about is uh, the remarkable cinematography technique in this movie that is this incredible idea of setting up the cameras directly in front of actors' faces, right? You have mm -hmm. eyes looking directly into the camera at the viewer, which is a really unnerving thing and it's why movies don't do it you're always looking just past it just above it whatever um because it it unnerves the viewer it feels like you're being you know impugned or whatever but i love the way that eyes are used in this movie overall we talked about the way people look at her and you alluded to um the men in the fbi looking at her and yeah there are some that are ogling her because obviously jodie foster is a beautiful woman but uh, there's that great scene towards the beginning when she gets on that elevator where she's wearing the gray sweatshirt and all the men are just wearing those red polos and every single one of them before the doors close has snuck a look at her and not a sexual, you know, ogling look, but just a, what does this girl think she's doing here look? And from then on, it's all about eyes, eyes, eyes in this movie. Hannibal has these incredible violet eyes that just, you know, 
see everything and that really just absorb your vision and absorb the whole field of the camera. And um, there's a great moment you mentioned when she's looking at the, the murder board of Buffalo Bill's uh, you know, case behind Jack Crawford's head. But the way that that is set up is that um, it's a head on shot on Jodie Foster's eyes and you can tell she's looking at something horrifying. And then the camera flips and you have a mimicry of the way she would, Clarice would have viewed it, where it goes up and it goes over a little bit and then it goes back and hovers on something. And um, yeah, I, I just love, th this is what we would call in literature, a motif of eyes. Um, and it's a bit on the nose, but boy, I think it works. I, I read this once and you would absolutely be able to fact check this, you know, around this time of year, there's always a uh, 13 things you didn't know about Silence of the Lambs or 12 things you didn't know about Michael Myers. And <laughs> something that I read was that the director, it was sort of like a last minute decision. Um, Hannibal Lecter's cell, uh, they made like kind of a last minute decision to make it this last kind of almost futuristic looking yeah. barrier between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. And what I read, and you can obviously fact check this for me, is that the director didn't want to film between bars. And so, like you said, it, more about the optics and the visual or visualization of just Jodie Foster and quite literally this invisible veil between her and this prolific killer, Anthony Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that is my understanding. And another one of these stories I've heard about this is that the way they shot it is, you know, they made Anthony Hopkins go to the bathroom, get everything done, and then they screwed that thing into the wall and just left him there. And they set up the, they set up the camera into, you know, a, not even a two shot. It was just a one shot on him. And he did all of his coverage, all of his scenes directly into the camera. And she's there, of course, acting with him, but you know, he's having to deliver all of it directly into a camera, like a monologue or something. And then they unscrewed him. They took a break for lunch. They put him back in, screwed it, screwed the, the wall back in, and then um, did the same thing on Jodie Foster. And uh, the amount of energy and control that would take as an actor to know, okay, this part is going to be bigger on their end. So I don't want to give anything away until it's, you know, it's her go versus my go. Um, it really shows just how intelligent and talented both of them are because they're, so, they're also not getting to move and interact, right? They're just looking at each other. And it, it shows just how much energy and emotion and communication you can do with just your eyes. It's, it's just remarkable acting. Absolutely. And I mean, even like their dialects, when um, Anthony Hopkins, you know, sort of mimics and mocks her act. I mean, oh my goodness. It's, it's just, I, I don't even know if it would have the same effect, like you said, if they were in, quote, in, in the same room with one another, but it, it is something about just like the stillness of them being in this underground row of cells, just looking yeah. at one another. And it's ultimately silent, except, you know, sub their voices. And yeah, the, just the different changes and in inflection in their voices, when it changes, the pitch changes, like you feel it because that's all you have. Mm -hmm. And it, um, you know, we talked about him not Hannibal being like beyond human or subhuman or whatever adjective you want to use, but just not being really human. And the idea of him in this glass, like you said, futuristic cage, it, it makes you think and remember that you're dealing with something you've never dealt with before because they're, you know, she's talking to this thing in this glass container that you know walks like a human talks like a human can act like a human but is so much more than that and it that set design is so brilliant it's really creepy especially because like you said it's underground right so it's got these stone kind of almost dungeony fortress walls uh oh man it's uh it's the those scenes are just so good and all it is quote unquote is two people talking but it just feels like so much more than that mm-hmm there's also the, uh, the, you know, the quote that uh, is kind of one of the famous ones from the trailer where Jack Crawford says, no, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. And there's a great visual representation of that, where as the conversation goes on, when the camera flips back towards Clarice, um, you can see his face superimposed in the reflection, almost like he's just whispering inside of her head as well as directly to her. And man, I just love this movie. It's just layers on layers on layers.
I know that just gave me goosebumps when you mm -hmm. said that. Uh, let's talk about the scares in this movie because there are several and they are really, really creepy. I, I'm sure we both have fond memories of the first time we saw uh, the showdown in Buffalo Bill's house. Mm. Oh, and talk about eyes. Buffalo Bill has this weird fetish for night vision goggles. Yep. And it's so, that that great I can noise. hear it. Yeah. I can hear it right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, no, oh, yeah. this, okay, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I got nothing. Go for it. I was going to say, I have to pivot back for a second. We were talking about her character and her portrayal and, and just her being just quite frankly a badass. Um, another character that we didn't talk about was Dr. Chilton at <laughs> the institute in which Hannibal Lecter is staying. Um, he outright flirts with her, with Jodie Foster, uh, Clary Starling, when she's first meeting with him, um, you can tell he's he's flirting with her. And as they're walking down the steps and they're getting closer and closer kind of in this facility to Hannibal Lecter and she's continuing to resist his urges. And she's kind of quite frankly resisting his, his the way that he's, you know, sort of talking down to her and she's asserting her intelligence. He then it gets, of course, gets offended. And he says something to the illusion of like, well, you could have told me that upstairs, like you're wasting my time. And it's just another example of her being just like a total badass. Mm -hmm. And I love that she gives this really great fake, barely courtesy, courteous smile and says, uh, would have uh, denied me the pleasure of your company. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I would love to hear more of your perspective on what the feminism of this movie looked like and felt like for, for you. You know, it's interesting because I think about this all the time. When I was little and you ask a lot of kids, you know, what do you want to be when you get older? I always told people I wanted to be a psychologist and it was absolutely, and you can ask my parents this and they would agree. It's absolutely movies like this mm -hmm. that just, enthralled me and I don't know this movie girl interrupted um or flew over the cuckoo nest like these are the movies that I just could not stop thinking about I watched over and over and over again and I think as a girl watching this I mean you're literally putting this agent um in some of the most threatening like psychological and then also in-person situations and she just handles it like such a badass and with such grace that it's just it's representation but it just so much inspiration I just think it's it's just twofold it's she's she's a badass and if if you're looking at it in a like climbing the ladder shattering the ceiling sort of way um going through the FBI like you said a government employee and then also just her small um her small combativeness or whatever with these men that treat her inappropriately it's just twofold mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons that we like Hannibal Lecter as much as we do, because I, I I guess I shouldn't put that, uh, put those words in your mouth. Are you a fan of Hannibal Lecter? Yes. Okay, good. I am too. <laughs> uh, and I think one of the reasons that we like him so much is because, except for the times when he's prodding her, he respects Clarice and he doesn't talk down to her. And he is, I, I said this before, but he's kind of a fan of her. And he sees this person who's, desperately struggling to make it in a role that is not quote unquote meant for her. And that certainly wasn't designed to include her. And I think that he admires that gumption and also her intelligence. Cause that's what Hannibal Lecter, he values intelligence and he values courtesy more than anything. Um, and I think that he is a fan of hers and therefore we're a fan of his because for some reason, I think it's because of how well this, builds the whole the world is against her but she just doesn't care and she keeps going mentality is that we're fans of her from pretty much the the word go and you know that affection for her just grows and grows like I remember when she breaks into the um self-storage unit and I remember the first time I saw it being so scared that something was going to happen to her and thinking I'm so attached to this character already and we're only 30 minutes into this movie um yeah, and jumping to the sort of like her against the world thing that I just mentioned, there are so many potent metaphors of that. 
like there's the way that she's treated unequally in the training exercises where she and her partner, who's a guy, make a mistake and they say, you know, Jim, good form, blah, blah, blah. Clarice, you forgot to, or Starling, you forgot to check your corners again and that's why you're dead. Or uh, this almost over the top thing where she's holding this punching bag kind of blocking thing, blocking oh, that. And yeah, and she's literally surrounded by men who are beating the hell out of her. And she just sits there and takes it. And I don't know, I, I just find this movie to have such an interesting relationship with the idea of women in the workplace uh, and women in previously male dominated fields. And it's, it inspires the hell out of me. You know, and what's another interesting thing is that she, it's not a one-sided um, relationship by any means. Agent Starling picks up on it too, because at the very end of the movie, and I don't even know this character's name, but one of her really good friends and, and kind of buddies or allies in the training program, they're discussing at the end and she's telling Clarice that, you know, Hannibal Lecter's escaped. And I think she's expecting this horrific reaction from Jodie Foster. And she's like, no, you know, like he's not going to hurt me. And her friend says, well, how could you say that? You know, and Agent Starling says, I can't explain it, but he would consider that rude. He wouldn't do that. He, he wouldn't mm. hurt me. And so then you're like, she sees it too. It's not just me, you know? Yeah, I think that, I think that even though they're destined to spar because, you know, she represents law and order and he kind of represents just doing whatever you want. Um, I think that she really does have an affection for him because he sees something in her. And uh, this is not a spoiler. I think it's revealed pretty early, but uh, she is dealing with a lot of residual grief and guilt over the death of her father, who was a police officer. And I think that this movie is filled with potential and actual father figures. And the way she interacts with both Jack and with Hannibal in that regard is really interesting. Mm. Um, The flashbacks to her father. Oh my goodness. They're really powerful. And not just the, the flashbacks themselves, but more all Jodie Foster has is a screenplay that says, okay, uh, the viewer is seeing child you go up to the graveside blah 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 and then she just again she just knocks it out of the park like she is so good in those scenes when she's when she's outside of the institution and she's just crying by her car mm. yeah mm. Um, the, the migs incident mm. it's he's such a and let's let's jump into hannibal the character a little bit um he is kind of this satan on earth character in the way of he doesn't you know he again I've, I've said this before but he moves like a human he talks like a human he acts like a human but he's definitely not a human like there is something so much more than that about him um and I I'm curious as to what really sticks out that we haven't talked about um to you about him and why you think we attach to him the way that we do I think that it's one of the greatest ironies ever right that this former psychiatrist turns out to be so, so psychologically unwell himself, Mm -hmm. if you'll say that, um, by like society's conventions, we would call him unwell or um, neurotic at the least. And he, that's just not who you expect. You, so many villains come from, I mean, obviously very different paths, but I, I cannot think of another one that he had this white collar, profession and and he was esteemed in his profession and then he of course he goes on to be this person who is a cannibal like literally a cannibal Mm -hmm. um and so I think that's fascinating and so of course that's reflected in his dialogue he's very well spoken he's very intelligent he literally because of his training and his background he's able to not only psychoanalyze everything that Clary says he interprets her dreams and he, he, that's, of course, where the title of the movie comes from. And he mm-hmm. finds, he forges this connection with the Silence of the Lambs of her childhood and her motivation to save others now in her field of work. And so I think that's a huge thing. It's like not somebody that you would think to, to play that role. So I think that's a huge part of it. And it's, there's something so scary, right, about there's nowhere more vulnerable than in your therapist's office. And the idea that your therapist not only is a psychopath, but just like doesn't value, unless you're interesting to him, couldn't care less about you and your problems. Like uh, there's this great line where he's talking about a former patient and he says, 
garden variety manic depressive. It's great that he was murdered. His therapy was going nowhere. Yep. And just those offhand comments like that, that he can, it's creepy and fascinating that he can fake it so well. And I think it's, it's something that's well done in the, uh, I don't know if you've watched Hannibal, the TV show, uh, which is brilliant yeah, on Netflix. Like a week ago. What, oh, you have? Yeah, about a week ago. I'm a couple episodes in. You've been telling me about it for a long time and I've finally started. Yeah, that and The Good Wife are my two favorite uh, drama TV shows ever. And um, Hannibal is streaming on Netflix. I can't recommend it enough to y'all, if you, especially if you like Silence of the Lambs and you're kind of intrigued by this character. It does such a great job of looking at what this character would be like out in the wild. And um, I, I just love the way it captures this simultaneous, you only matter if you're interesting to him but then as soon as you're not interesting, boy, do you not matter. And at the same time, he's capable of anything. Like towards the end of the movie, once he's had his incredibly brilliant escape plan uh, go successfully, he says, um, you know, I won't call on you, Clarice, and I'd expect you to do the same. And um, and she says, you know, that I, I can't promise that. And it makes you nervous because... How can she beat this guy? How could anyone? I mean, if anyone could do it, it's Clarice, but I don't know. Mm. Yeah. There's something too about his character that, and I know that this was definitely an intentional move, but that the entire film for the most, yeah, I want to say the entire film, they dress him in all white, which is very sterile. And I don't know. I mean, talking about archetypes, um, really traditional dark versus light of dark being evil, light being good. I mean, he, he, I don't know, it sort of plays on this white, sterile, like I said, psychiatrist, doctor, dentist, like kind of primal fear that people have. And so, you know, he's not this like looming, creepy figure in in an alleyway. He's this person in a well-lit area and all white and he's horrifying. Yeah, I never thought about that until just now, but you're right, it's very uh, Jungian, but Mm. also kind of inverted because Clarice is wearing the black suit several times, I think. And mm-hmm. he's the one wearing white. Mm-hmm. And and that's, I don't know, it's really interesting. It's almost like she is in and of the darkness and he's in this, like you said, sterile, almost medical environment. Um, man, I need to go back to my my Jung and my Freud and <laughs> see what else. There's uh, the, the classic Freud, of course, is the trinity of id, ego, super ego. And we have uh, Clarice, Hannibal, and Jack possibly being that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm going off the cuff here, but I would have to look more into that. But I, de- I definitely believe there's something there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any, what are some of your favorite Hannibal lines? Because boy, he has some gems. Something I joked about with Joe recently was talking about getting a glass of Chianti tonight um, mm-hmm. for the podcast. He was like, it's only fitting. I loved the the comment about the census um, collector and the, the fava beans. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts, and I can't quote it verbatim, but after the first time that Clarice goes to visit and she's leaving, and of course we have the incident with Migs and she gets upset, he gets upset, she runs back to him and he gives this like feverish, super quick um, sort of like last plea. Like it's like he had decided he wasn't really going to help her and then that scene happened and it was like his human showed for a second. Yeah, yeah. And he felt like, I don't know, talking about humanizing somebody, it's crazy. You don't think of him, you think of him being very calculated and very controlled. And that was obviously not planned, um, what happened with Migs. And so to see him react that way was just, I don't know, it like all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, like he's a real person and he has feelings. Yeah. And it's also the only part in the whole movie where he yells, where he raises his voice at all. So riled up by this discourtesy that has happened to someone who he finds. And I, maybe you're right. Maybe that's the moment when he realizes that he respects her. Um, cause he's, you know, he's been enjoying his time with her, but he's definitely like going back and forth about what he's going to give her and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, that's a great moment. Uh, I love when she goes to see him in the temporary holding cell in Tennessee and he goes, he, you know, doesn't turn around and he says, uh, something about, oh, Clarice, it's you, blah, blah, blah. And then as she gets closer, he spins in his chair and goes, people will say we're in love. He's I, every line he just chews on and has the time of his life doing it's so you can tell that words really matter to the character and that because he doesn't have any anything to lose 
because he's in captivity. He's been caught. So he doesn't have to pretend that he's anything that he's not. So he can really be himself. And you can, like, everything is just dripping with contempt and sarcasm. And I know that I'm better than you until it's not, until he's actually enjoying himself talking to, to her. Um, it really is just one of those, like, I can see why it ended up the quote unquote greatest film villain of all time, because it's, it's just such an incredible performance. Well, and when, when she goes to visit him for the first time, or I think it's the first time and um, he is quite literally sniffing her out to, from oh. her cream. And he says, you know, Niv you use Nivea hand cream and he names her perfume and he says, but you're not wearing it today. I mean, he can smell this trace scent of her perfume on, on her. He can smell this and it just, mm -hmm. it is so creepy. Yes. It's so creepy. Um, and I love also the moment it's, it's her second visit when, um, he says something that she finds crass and, uh, and Clarice says, well, frankly, it's the kind of thing that Miggs would say. And Hannibal goes, not anymore. <laughs> and oh, it's so good. Man, I, I may have to watch it again tonight. I literally watched it uh, yesterday, but I may have to watch it again tonight. It's so, so good. It's so clever. Mm -hmm. um, man, I think, I think that's Silence of the Lambs. We could talk about this for hours. Obviously, we're both huge fans. Um, definitely check out this it's on netflix and amazon check out the show hannibal it's also on netflix and amazon uh next week as Lindsay alluded to we're capping off the spooky season with maybe the spookiest movie ever for me personally the shining uh can't wait to talk about it i absolutely love it before we go Lindsay, uh are you watching reading listening to anything uh anything worth talking about absolutely um so I'm always reading something, but I'm going to start with TV shows that I've, I just finished Nur Nurse Ratched. Um, <gasps> How is it? I loved it. And I know okay. that it, the reviews were harsh, but I'm, I'm still for it. Um, I love, I love the acting. I love the characters. I love the storyline, obviously the illusion from where it's source. I just love. Um, I also just finished on HBO Max, Murders at White House Farm. I strongly suggest it if you're a true crime fan. Um, and like Lee said, I just started Hannibal about a week ago and I'm very into it. Yeah. That sounds very good. I just started Succession and it is excellent. <gasps> Lee, I love Succession. Yeah. I can't believe I care this much about a show about business. I was like, I can't, there's no way I can handle this. I'm never going to be able to keep up and boy, oh boy, is it good. Mm. Uh, and then let's see the uh, Netflix just dropped a movie called the trial of the Chicago seven. That's going to be the first current release that the podcast covers. I'm going to do that in a couple of weeks. So I'm watching that this week and I'm very excited about it. It's got Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, speaking of, apparently there's a new Borat movie that just, they did a Beyonce and they just surprise dropped it. Have you heard about this? No, not at all. Yeah. Like, and, and apparently they, they have like Rudy Giuliani fooling around with a prostitute in it. Like they got him to do it on camera cause he's such an idiot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cannot wait to watch that. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for listening to have you seen. Um, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Lee underscore H underscore Henry. And you can find the podcast on Instagram at have you seen podcast. Lindsay, where can people find you? So I am also on Instagram and my Instagram handle is Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y dot K-A-U-I-T-Z-S-C-H. All right. Thank you guys so much. Next week, we'll be back for our final spooky installment with The Shining. Have a great spooky, spooky weekend and we will see you soon.